Well, some of you grew up in an age where we did grilling the old school method. We, we actually got a bunch of charcoal briquettes, put them in a pile in the grill, coated them with lighter fluid, and then dropped a match on them, and then, and then just tried to get the flame to build up and waited for those coals to light. And once they began to show some gray and show that little glow on them, we were ready to, to put our burgers or our, our steak on the grill. And this reminds me of, of what took place in the book of Acts. Some of you are reading through the book of Acts with us. We've had reading plans at the Welcome Center. You can stop by and pick one up if you haven't started with us, but we're only two weeks in. And we read about the story uh, on the day of Pentecost. And by the way, when you go there, if you'd like to get a journal, uh, Eva and my assistant Connie put together some journals that you can actually write down uh, what God's teaching you, what he's showing you through there. And these are available at the Connections counter as well for a small donation. Um, but in that story, in, in Acts chapter 2, we find these believers gathered together. They're like coals. They're all gathered together, huddled in this upper room, 120 of them, and they're covered in prayer. They've been praying day after day because Jesus made a promise to them that if they would wait there, he would send the Holy Spirit to them who would then empower them to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. And when the Holy Spirit came, the Bible says it was like tongues of fire. And the church ignited. And it began to grow and the heat rose and credible things began to happen. But you know, when you do a, a fire like this, when you use these old briquettes, when you get through with it and you want to put the fire out, typically what you do is you start to spread the coals. Because you know that when coals are isolated, they begin to die out. And there's a great spiritual principle with that because Jesus knew that, that if his church was going to survive, it had to stay together. And yet there was an enemy called the devil who would come along and do everything he could. He failed in defeating Christ, but now he'd go after his church. And what he'd try to do is he'd just try to divide it and separate it. Get believers opposed to one another, separated from one another, because if he could do that, he could kill the fire within the church. I want to talk to you about that today. How do we protect this fire? How do we protect the unity within the church? If you're new uh, with us, if you just started coming in the last few weeks, maybe you started coming on Easter. We, we spent several months in the fall going through the book of Ephesians, actually even into January and February this year. And Ephesians is a very interesting book. It's one of my favorite books of the Bible. I've got, um, I've got 66 books I really like in the Bible, and um, that's one of my favorites. It's the book of Ephesians. Any book you get into becomes your favorite. So in Ephesians, we, we see a man named Paul. Now, Paul, who was a Jewish man, used to be very opposed to Christians, used to go and hunt Christians and extract them from their Bible study groups, and then sometimes even watch them get killed, gets confronted by Jesus on a road to Damascus. His life is turned around 180 degrees, and he now becomes the biggest advocate for this faith he once opposed. And so Paul begins to spread this message about Jesus. And Jesus has a special calling on him that he goes to the Gentiles. Gentiles are non-Jews. It's, it's everybody who's not Jewish, which is a lot of the world. So Paul begins to go into all these other locations, and he begins to preach and forms churches. He forms little communities of coals that begin to burn with the message of the gospel. And one of the places he visited and planted a church was in Ephesus. Now, in ancient uh, Middle East... Ephesus was one of the four epicenters of activity. It was a port city on the Mediterranean Sea. 
And its hallmark was the Temple to Diana, or Artemis. It was this grand temple. It's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And people would offer sacrifices to the gods at this temple. They would engage with sex with prostitutes at this temple. People would come from all over to Ephesus simply to go to the temple. And not only were people very pagan in that region with a multiplicity of gods, they were into the dark arts, the the magic. Now, I'm not talking about David Copperfield, Chris Angel type of magic. I'm talking about communicating with spirits or trying to get information or gain power from spiritual beings around us. And you didn't know there really are spiritual beings around us. And for the person who's really open to connecting with them, you can connect. And these people began to connect with these spirits, but what they didn't realize was they were demonic spirits. And so when Paul comes in preaching, these demonic spirits are exposed, and people say, I don't want to have anything to do with that anymore, and hundreds convert to faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul stays there three years, teaches them, disciples them, then he leaves, travels around to other locations, and then ends up in prison in Rome. And while he's in prison, he writes some letters, and they're known as the prison epistles. Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and Philemon are the four books he wrote while he was in prison there. And when he wrote this book to Ephesians, he was writing to these believers to encourage them in their walk with Christ, to remind them what God did for them, to remind them who they are now in Christ, and give them direction how to live their lives. And if you open up the book of Ephesians, there's six chapters, and it's really very neatly divided between chapters 1 through 3 and chapters 4 through 6. Chapters 1 through 3 are about God's work. What has God has done for us through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit? Chapters 4 through 6 is about the believer's walk, how we live based on what God has done for us. Because God has, God has saved us. He's redeemed us. He's forgiven our sins. He's made us part of his family. He's filled us with his Holy Spirit. He's sealed us as his. He's done all these things. Therefore, it should affect how we live. In other words, the first half of Ephesians is about doctrine. The second half is about duty. Or the first half is about what we believe. second half is about how to behave. And so we're moving now into that section, the second half of the book of Ephesians. And Paul's going to start with the word, therefore. And whenever you see the word, therefore, in the scripture, you should ask yourself, what is it therefore? It's pointing backwards to something. He's saying, based on what I've just said. So what has Paul just said? Well, he's just got done saying in three chapters all that God has done for them. But maybe, maybe it's building up to what was said in chapter 3. That God's plan all along was this mystery. People didn't know this in the past, but God made it very clear through Jesus that this mystery of the gospel was that the Gentiles, together with the Jews, would form one family, the family of God. And so as we begin to read in chapter 4, that sets the stage for this scripture. If you have a Bible, or if you have an app or a tablet, you can open up to Ephesians chapter 4, or you can follow along on our screen with these first six verses. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Paul is speaking here of this one key thing. Maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Maintain it. Hold it together. God has done an incredible thing. 
When you think about what God has done for the Jews and the Gentiles and bringing them together, it's an amazing, miraculous thing. I mean, think about it. People who are very uh, religious and very devoted to one God are now brought together with people who have very pagan backgrounds, very different um, eating habits, very different way of living, brings them together, and now they're sitting in churches together. It's a miracle. Today it would be like if you took the Jews today and the Palestinians and put them together in one house and said, hey, you guys are all family now. How hard that would be. And that's what it was like in Jesus' day. These people who didn't get along are now brought together as one. It's a miracle. It's two becoming one. Ephesians 2 says that, that God has brought them together as one. And we see that very similarly in another relationship in a marriage. In a marriage, God makes two to become one. It's a miracle. It's a spiritual connection that God causes. But you need to know that even though God brings that together, it's not our doing, we don't make two one, it's up to us then to maintain that unity. It's up to us to hold it together. And I have to tell you, like in a marriage, getting married, getting hooked together is pretty easy. It's maintaining the marriage that's the real challenge, right? It's the same with a church. It's getting into a church. It's joining a church. It's pretty easy. It's kind of fun. It's like a honeymoon stage. And then you get to know people. And you go, I don't like that person. That person's different from me. And, and I don't like the way they do this. And it's just like marriage. Don't you discover things you don't like? And the question is, how then do you work together to maintain the unity that God has created? See, God wants us to protect this very precious thing called the relationship we have as the family of God. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are citizens of his kingdom. We're we're a temple in which he dwells by his Holy Spirit. God is doing an incredible work through us, and yet many of us have gone through the heartbreak of unity falling by the wayside. It could be a friendship that went sorrow. It could be a marriage that didn't make it, ended up in divorce could be that you were a part of a church and poured your life into it and things went awry and you were really wounded by that. And here's what happens when we go through those situations. See, I can go to a restaurant and have a bad experience, but I don't give up eating. I just go to another restaurant. But there are people who, who go through a relationship issue like marriage or a church, and when it falls apart, they say, you know, I'm never going to do that again. I'm not going to get married again. I'm not going to open my life to someone again. I'm not going to go to another church again because it hurt me so deeply. And what's so sad is God God doesn't want any of those relationships to fall apart. He wants what he brings together to be held together. And what we're going to find in the scripture here is what Paul shared with us are two essential resources that help us to hold it together. To hold it together. Now he'll use the word walk here to walk in a certain way. And it was interesting. I read a study by Shinsu University from Japan that discovered that every individual has a distinct walk based on the distance of their steps, the pressure they they place on their heel or on their toes, the speed of their gait. All those things make your walk distinct from someone else. They said they can identify a person with 99% accuracy based simply on their walk. Sometimes you see someone in the shadows walking, you go, I know who that is, because they have a distinct walk. Some people are very um, happy when they walk. I mean, they they bounce when they walk, and some people just kind of drag when they walk, and there are other people who have, you know, kind of a confidence when they walk, you know, John Wayne, you know, and some people, you know, like Michael Jackson, just walk in another direction, you know, (laughs) 
A model has a certain way of walking. You know, we all have distinct ways of walking. And spiritually, we do too. And yet Paul's telling us there ought to be a way of walking that's consistent with what you believe. So he talks about it here, and he says, let's draw upon these these resources. The first one is to draw upon God's graces to maintain unity. These are things that God puts in us that, that affects our heart and how we relate to one another. See, God is for unity. Jesus prayed for it in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know when Jesus was in the garden praying about about God taking away this cup from him, the suffering with crucifixion, while Jesus is praying about his own life, that he's going to go to the cross, he's thinking even beyond the cross to the formation of his church, and he's, he's praying for the church. And here's what he prays in, the, in, the, in that prayer. You can find it in John 17, but I'm just going to read a small portion of it. In John chapter 17, Jesus prays, The glory you've given me, I have given to them, that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them as you love me. Jesus is saying, you know, I'm going to leave this earth, and God, help these disciples to stick together. Help my followers to stay together. Because there is an enemy who wants to separate them, who wants to work against them. Help them to be One, just as you and I are one, one in spirit, one in purpose, united together. Jesus prayed that for them. And so Jesus prays it for us too, that we will be unified with the grace that he gives. And sadly, church history is fraught with just the whole history of church splits and and division. I mean, there are hundreds of different denominations all within the realm of Christianity. Even within a a group like the Baptist Church, there's dozens of different kinds of Baptists. Do you know that? There's a lot of different Lutherans and Presbyterians. And, you know, some churches are so adamant that they're the only right ones that they won't even fellowship with other people because they believe something differently or they practice something differently or they use a different version of the Bible. Maybe you grew up in a church that said, you know, we're the right church, they're the wrong church. And so the church has been so splintered and it's so sad And yet I see efforts today, even for churches, to say, hey, there really is one church. And if you look around Colorado Springs, there's a beautiful thing that's going on in our city. There are a lot of churches that you cannot tell what kind of church it is based on the name. You don't know if it's Assembly of God. You don't know if it's Congregational, Methodist, Baptist, non-denominational. You don't know because it just says, like, New Life Church, Radiant Church, Discovery Church. But you don't know what it is. And uh, what I'm finding is pastors are coming together, like, in the Fountain Valley here, every month, there are pastors that come together and we pray for each other. And we encourage one another because we need all of the churches to be effective. There's too much for any one church to handle all of the work that needs to be done. In Colorado Springs, there's a network of churches called The Merge. And here's the stated purpose of The Merge. The Merge is a gathering of Colorado Springs pastors committed to building unity, support, and friendship with one another. Our mission is to serve our city shoulder to shoulder and merge our voices as one to proclaim the lordship of Jesus Christ in our community. I love that statement. And so when you're praying for Pikes Peak Christian Church, remember that we're part of a bigger church, a bigger church that God has brought together, all based upon this simple, common, shared belief. Now, Paul goes on to share what's required within us to make this unity possible. At first he says you need humility. Humility. Humility is thinking rightly about yourself. 
It's not thinking too highly about yourself, nor thinking too lowly about yourself, but thinking rightly about yourself. It's not thinking less about yourself, it's just thinking about yourself less, which is what Jesus did. See, here's what a humble person can do. A humble person says, I'm good with who I am, I know who I am, and I'm good with it. I'm not better than you, but I'm not worse than you. And I, 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 I feel like I'm stable enough that I now can lift you up. And that's what humble people do. They lift up everyone else around them. And that's what Jesus did. When you're humble, you're willing to listen before you speak, understand before you judge, and help before you criticize. When people are humble, relationships succeed. He says that you need gentleness. Or some of your Bibles will say meekness. Now, meekness is not weakness. Gentleness or meekness is strength under control. It's a word that's used of a soft wind. Or a word that's used of a cult that has been broken. There's a strength that has been harnessed. And when you see someone who's gentle, it's not because they're a pansy. It's because you know, they're a strong person. They've just, they're just controlling that strength. When you think of someone who's a gentleman, you probably think of someone who's probably stands straight, strong, but puts others first, is kind to other people, is a gentle man. And we see this perfect blend of, of humility and gentleness in Jesus. In Matthew chapter 11... Verse 29, Jesus said that we're, it's safe to come to him for this reason. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Some of your Bibles there will say meek, and you will find rest for your souls. Think of an environment where people are humble and gentle. It just, it feels safe. It brings healing and health to a family, to a workplace, to a church. God wants us to exhibit both of those characteristics Last month, I saw a video of a girl that stood up during an anti-gun walkout rally at a high school, and she had a different message. Her message to her fellow students was, we can oppose guns, but there's something that strikes closer to home, and it's bullying. And she was very passionate in telling them, until we stop bullying one another, this won't stop. Because did you know that a majority of, of gunmen who go back into schools have a history of being bullied by someone in that school? by multiple people at school. In 2014, Time Magazine wrote an article. It says there are 200,000 bullied high school students in America who bring weapons, knives or guns, to school. 200,000. That a bullied student is 31 times more likely to be violent. See, we need gentle people. I remember back in high school, there was a kid named Mark. And Mark was a little different from other kids, and he got teased a lot. And the one place he found safety was in the youth group. When I went off to college and Mark graduated from high school, I I heard a couple years later that Mark had done something very horrible. He had actually stabbed his sister to death. And I just checked yesterday. He's still in prison for his crime. I think how his life could have been different if this kid would have been embraced by his fellow students when he was young instead of going through life with this chip on his shoulder. He'd walk around like this all the time, like he was angry, but he was very defensive because of, of what had happened to him. We need to learn to be gentle. Gentleness diffuses tension and creates safe environments. And then Paul says to be patient, bearing with one another. It takes patience to endure the differences of others. It, it requires patience to say, I'm not going to respond how I naturally feel I should respond. I'm going to give some time. I'm going to give some rope so that so I'm not going to react to what you're doing. That's patience. It's bearing something. It's carrying a weight 
It's actually suffering. What it means literally is, I'm going to suffer a little bit because of you, but I'm willing to do that because I love you. It takes patience in order to make a relationship be strong. When I think of these three qualities, the humility, the gentleness, and the patience, what immediately comes to my mind are when I go to a, is when I go to a, a dog park and see the big 100-pound beastly dog gets confronted by the little tiny dog. See that the little tiny dog comes up and starts to dance all around the big dog. And what does he do? He barks. He barks. He lets himself be known. You know, I'm tough. I'm strong. I'm here. Don't mess with me. I'm going to bite you. And, and, you know, darts around. And the big dog typically just goes, ah. And I'm, I'm thinking, if I could get in the head of that dog, I think he would be thinking like this. I could squash you with my paw. I could grab you in my mouth and fling you a hundred yards if my master wasn't standing right here. <laughs> See, I think of people who, are, who possess those qualities say, you know what, I have the ability to actually hurt you, to respond to you, to verbally attack you. I'm not going to because someone's watching. And someone knows that I should walk differently, behave differently, and that is the Lord. These qualities, the humility, the gentleness, the patience, are really fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's what is the result of walking with the Lord. He begins to change our heart. They're, they're non-aggressive responses. But you know the one word of aggression in this passage is this. Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. If you want to be aggressive about something, be aggressive about, about, about this. Protect the unity of your church. Be passionate about that. Fight for that. That's what you should get upset about. Protect it. But that's one half of it. Paul goes on to say that there's another piece, another essential resource for maintaining unity, and it's truth. Truth. We have to have truth. Truth Truth is really what holds us together. Now, I grew up in a church that was part of the ecumenical movement. The ecumenical movement was a movement by churches saying, you know, our differences have divided us. Our different beliefs have divided us. So we need to come together and love each other. And with the love of God, love each other and love other people. And if we do that, there'll be happy harmony. But the problem with that is this. What brings us together cannot be sacrificed for the sake of love. There is a reason why we can come together, and that is because of what Jesus has done for us. If someone denies what Jesus has done for you, how can you be one with that person? You know, I, I want to love the world, but I don't believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Well, how, can we share, how can we share unity then when you don't believe the thing that has changed my life? See, at the core, there has to be some truth that pulls us together. Now, it's not every thing in the Bible. Obviously, we can't, we don't agree on everything in the Bible. No, no two churches do that. And so it's impossible to say that we all have to agree on everything within the Bible. And sometimes we go around and put labels on ourselves that actually, I think, do more harm than good. I'll give you an example. We, we say things like, well, we're a Bible church. We're a contemporary church. We're a spirit-filled church. We're a New Testament church. The unchurched world doesn't care anything about those labels. All we're doing is catering to the church community saying, we're better than that church because we're this. See, we're a Bible church because they're not Bible churches. We're a spirit-filled church because they're not spirit-filled. 
we're, we're a New Testament church because they just follow the Old Testament. You know, it's, it's making a judgment about everybody else. And honestly, I think, I think almost every church that I know that truly wants to follow the Lord, loves the Bible, wants the Holy Spirit to work in them, wants to follow the teachings of the New Testament. I mean, they want to do all those things. So let's not divide from one another. Let's find out what we can unite around. And Paul says there are seven things that ought to pull us together, four or seven strands of truth that we can unite around. So I'm going to quickly go through these. One is there's one body. This is the most common word to describe the church is the body of Christ. And it is a beautiful picture because when you think of a body, you think of all these different parts. You got hands, you got eyes, you got ears, you got feet. You know, all these different parts combine together to form one. There's diversity with unity and dependency. See, none of them can survive without each other. A body is not just like, it's not like Mr. Potato where you just have a collection of parts, you plug them in. No, they, they actually function together. I, I can't be who I, I'm made to be without you helping me. I can't, without my ears functioning, I can't do all the things I need to do. Without my eyes helping, I can't walk in the right direction. I need the body to work together. He says there's one body and you're all part of it. Not just the local church, but the extended church. We're all part of one big body. We need to work together. We need to rely on each other. There's one body. There's one spirit. Even though we have different um, genetic makeup, we all have the same spirit living within us, the same spirit that convicts all of us, uh, rebirths all of us, fills all of us, produces spiritual fruit within us, um, gifts us for ministry. It's the same Holy Spirit. It's not a different spirit. You don't have a different Holy Spirit than I do. It's the same spirit, really seeking to do the very same things within my own personality and your personality. He's doing the same things. He's working in the same way to make us more like Jesus. One spirit. He says there's one hope. One hope. When I think of the one hope, I think of the, the power of a common destination. See, we all come from different backgrounds, but that really doesn't matter. What matters is where our destination is. Not where we're from, but where we're going. Now think of a sports team where you could have players from big colleges, little colleges, um, junior colleges, no college. But when those athletes put the uniform on of their team, they're one. And they work together for one goal. We do that as Christians. When I wear the name Christian, when I put the Christian uniform on, I'm, I'm living for Jesus. And we're all focused in the future of going to the very same place, the hope of heaven spending eternity with him. There's one hope that unites us. It brings us almost like a funnel together to one place. Then he says there's one Lord, one Lord, one authority in our lives. It's not just believing that Jesus is Lord. It is surrendering, submitting to him as the actual Lord of our lives. He is in charge. And there's power to hold people together when, when they decide that Jesus is going to be the Lord over them. Think of, in the, in the smallest context, a husband and wife. We, we teach this at Reengage, our marriage ministry. When a man and a woman each say, we want Jesus to be Lord of our lives, it's amazing how quickly they can come together. It's how quickly they can resolve issues because they both decided to surrender themselves to the authority of a higher uh, power, which is Jesus Christ. When all of us as believers do that, think what happens in a church. You've got hundreds of people, thousands of people who all say, I'm not in charge and you're not in charge, but Jesus is in charge and we're all seeking to get our direction from him. Wow, that's powerful, right? 
So we want Jesus to be that one Lord of our lives. There's one faith. One faith. Now, this may be a harder word to determine what he actually means by this because faith can mean a lot of different things. You can ask someone, what faith are you? And you're referring to what religion are you or what denomination are you? You, you can talk to people about faith. And in the Bible, faith sometimes is referred to as a body of truth, the faith once for all delivered to the saints, a, a body of truth delivered to them. But I think what Paul is referring to here is closer to belief that there is one belief. What I mean by that is there is one belief that unites us all. A lot of things we can disagree on about the Bible, but there's one belief that determines whether you're going to heaven or not. There's one thing that if you believe, you're good, and if you don't believe, you're not going to make it. And that belief is this, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died on the cross for our sins, was buried, and rose from the dead. If you believe that, you're saved. I mean, you may be off on some other Bible beliefs, like I don't, I don't really understand this issue and I don't really get a handle on that. Well, keep growing, keep learning. But make sure you have the main thing, the main thing. If you have that in place, it's okay. You don't have per- perfect understanding of everything else. But the opposite is true. You can have a perfect understanding of everything else, think you have it all put in order, but you don't believe this one thing. The Bible says you won't be saved. It's nothing more than Jesus and nothing less than Jesus. It's the one faith that we hold to, the faith in him. Next, one baptism. This can often be a very divisive thing because one church sprinkles babies, another another church immerses believing adults. Which is it? What is he talking about? It looks like there's many baptisms. Well, he says there's actually just one. And we don't know if this is speaking of spiritual baptism or physical baptism. But I think in most people's minds, when you say the word baptism, their mind immediately thinks of the, the typical one, the, the, the water baptism. And I think what Paul is focusing on here is the meaning of it. You only need to do it once. And it's for this one reason. Surrender to Jesus Christ. There's one baptism. It's a surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ. We're baptized into his name, the Bible says. And if you believe in Jesus Christ, you have the opportunity, even the obligation to demonstrate your faith publicly in that way. There's one baptism. We had a gal come up during the prayer time, the first service, and says, I'm ready to do that. I've never been baptized as a believer. There is one baptism. It's into Christ. And then there's one God. One God. This was really important for the Ephesian believers because remember, they had the temple with these other gods, and they were saying, we're done with all these other gods. There is one God, and he's overall." And he's in all and he's through all. And that's the God that we are going to follow with our lives. There is one God above all other so-called gods in this world. And that's the God we believe in. These are seven simple yet defining points of truth. Now, real quickly, what happens when, when things come up in those relationships? Like in a church, what do you do then when you say, like, I'm disappointed with people. I'm disappointed with the leadership or I'm frustrated with another person in the church. What do I do? Do I just leave and go to another church? Well, no. There are some directives the Bible gives. First is this. Address people's flaws, but, but do it with love. Do it lovingly. Address people's flaws lovingly. It says in Galatians chapter 6, in the very first verse, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. People don't need you coming in firing guns. But if you come up to someone, and people have done this to me after services, hey, pastor, you know, you said this thing, and I I think this was off base here. I think you hurt people when you said that. And I I need to hear those things because I'm not perfect. 
And we need to receive that. And if you give it in love, it's more likely that someone's going to receive it really well. We need to help one another grow. Another issue, what do you do with false teaching within a church? You need to address it firmly. Address it firmly. False teaching is a poison within the church. Paul wrote to Timothy and said, As I urged you when you were going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. False teaching can poison a church. And then maybe the worst thing that can hurt a church is gossip. And we need to stop gossip immediately. Immediately. It is one of the weapons that Satan uses to divide people. In the book of Proverbs, listen to this. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Get that last one, one who sows discord. I've had people sometimes uh, come, come and say, you know, our Bible study group met the other night, but we didn't get to the study because people had questions about the church. And usually that means there's somebody gossiping. Because rather than go address an issue so that it can be resolved, they just want to stir things up. And when you are around people that are stirring things up within your church, put the hand up say, no, no, we're not going to do that here. If they persist, say, I'm going to have to pull myself out because this is not loving the body of Christ.